What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to another episode of The Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. Today's guest is Jessica Cisneros. She recently ran for Congress in Texas's 28th Congressional District. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation, Crystal. Absolutely. Really excited to have you with us today and for listeners to hear about your story, to hear about your background and to hear how you've been fighting this awesome progressive fight in the state of Texas, considering all the nuances and challenges that we've seen come out of the state literally over the last year. So if you could just open up and share with us why you decided to run for office and how your background really led you to this moment in history and where we go from here. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a combination of kind of what I was facing in my professional life, the struggles that I had representing people in immigration court. Um, but also my lived experience, right? Being born and raised here in Laredo, Texas, um, knowing that my parents' story, you know, how they were able to get here in the 80s um, due to my sister needed, needing ur- urgent medical attention. Um, and then because of the 1986 immigration reform, that's how they got their start here and their shot at the American dream. So being very aware that a change in policy really was what you know, gave my parents this opportunity here in, in, in this country. Um, that's what led me to become an immigration attorney because I wanted to advocate for, you know, other people like my parents. Um, I become an immigration attorney during the Trump administration. Um, it was a very difficult time. Um, I think anybody, you know, um, could, could tell you that. Um, and the frustration that I kept facing um, while representing folks and seeing families torn apart and you know a lot of people especially immigration attorneys basically I mean um, immigration judges basically being like I want to help you but the law just isn't there Um, so at any kind of advocacy that I tried to do it seemed like the law was very much an obstacle Um, and knowing that again through a change of law that's how people like my parents got an opportunity I decided to run for Congress. Um, my um, at, at that time, my congressman was voting with Donald Trump 70% of the time. I knew that those were not values that aligned themselves with the district um, here in South Texas. And um, I also knew that no one had been stepping up um, to challenge him in quite some time. So I decided to do it. Um, we got very, very close to winning this last election. Um, we were about less than a percentage point away from winning. And I think that's just a testament to the fact that people here in South Texas want new representation. There is that appetite for change on the ground. Um, And I was just really happy to be able to provide what I could in terms of avenues for people here to get activated and start, you know, building a robust political infrastructure to make sure that we elect people that actually represent our values up and down the ballot. Wow, less than a percentage point is a nail biter. So one, 
Thank you for running. Thank you for adding a new voice into the process of democracy. I think a lot of times we say we need more candidates, and but until we see folks who look like us step up to run, um, we can't imagine someone representing our values and, and the beliefs that we have. And so one of the things that I was, as I was doing research just about you and your um, your race, is that you're really progressive. And that came up a lot throughout your your campaign. And there were a lot of moments where um, Democrats at large were, were thinking, why isn't the party at large embracing the Cisneros campaign, the Cisneros narrative about a progressive future against a more moderate, you know, Democratic candidate? So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about that. Um, and then we can kind of transition into what is the progressive Latino voter what are their thoughts about the midterm elections and how they see the midterms playing out considering this kind of in-party progressive versus moderate democratic um, fight or challenge, if you will? Yeah. You know, what's interesting that I think, um, you know, maybe people outside of the area might not be aware of when I'm out there, you know, when knocking on doors, talking to voters, you know, talking to them about the policy that I stand for and why, um, we don't really, I guess, label it as like progressive versus moderate versus conservative or versus a liberal, right? Like it really is such a substantive conversation. Um, and people here kind of not necessarily shy away from um, labels, but it's just not something that we particularly hold as important. I think people just want to know, you know, what are the ideas that you're bringing to the table and why? Um, and I think part of it is because conversations about policy have been missing and haven't before a campaign, you know, um, I think especially at, at the national focus, since this is a federal race, um, we didn't really have those conversations prior. Like, for example, when I um, decided to make Medicare for all a very important part of my policy platform, um, a lot of people didn't know what that program meant. Um, so it was a lot of unpacking um, these ideas, right? And um, the good thing, obviously, is that I can draw from my experience of being born and raised here. And my story is very much a South Texas story. And, you know, being able to focus a lot on storytelling, for example, talking about, you know, the reason why I support Medicare for all is because as a 13 year old, I saw my aunt pass away because she was diagnosed with cancer and we just couldn't afford to pay her treatment. And a lot of people here, you know, turn to fundraising, of course. And one of the ways that we fundraise is selling plates of food on the side of the highway. And um, like I said, my story is very much a South Texas story. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon. A lot of people go through this either themselves, you know, if they suffer an illness or a loved one. Um, and, you know, talking about how we shouldn't be forced to do this if we actually have healthcare coverage for everyone. Um, so things like those, being able to draw upon my experiences, I think was very important when we were trying to unpack what progressive policy means here in South Texas. Because I think that once people really understand, you know, these are the options that are, you know, in front of you, um, this is what I stand for. Um, people really do agree with the policy. But of course, coming in as a, well, in 2020 as a first time, you know, candidate. Um, and then the second time, 
Um, you know, thankfully we had a lot of the infrastructure we had built with, with our um, previous election, but anytime you go up against an incumbent that has a massive war chest, like in terms of communicating what that policy is, of course, that's going to be a challenge. But the fact that, you know, in less than three years, we're able to um, really move and push the conversation about progressive policy in South Texas and how much ground we're able to gain. I think, again, that just shows that, you know, this area really is seeking an alternative to the status quo. And that, you know, I'm just honored that my campaign and I, you know, our volunteers, people out there knocking the doors, doing all the phone banks, you know, any conversation that we're able to have with voters, that we're able to do that work um, to continue, you know, providing that alternative to what South Texas future can look like. Got it. That's helpful to kind of break down how people are thinking about, you know, the issues. And so speaking of speaking of voters and speaking of, you know, midterms, we know that it's here. Um, what do you think are the most important issues, not only to South Texans like yourself, but Latino voters on the whole? What are Latino voters thinking about as they head to the polls um, this November? In my conversations that you know, I've been talking with people, of course, they're pocketbook issues, right, which is something that we also talked about with our campaign, fighting for a $15 minimum wage. I mean, is a game changer here. Um, and we saw it with our own campaign, right? Like our workers, we had a very successful paid canvassing program that paid a lot more than $15 per hour because people were out there knocking on doors in a hundred degree weather. Yes. Um, and we wanted to adequately compensate them for that work and show them that, you know, their labor deserves a living wage. Um, so we saw how successful that was. We saw how popular um that platform issue was and i think especially now with you know inflation going up like mm -hmm. people do need higher wages um because they're still trying to struggle to make ends meet um but i think the other two issues that i've been seeing um uh of course abortion is going to be a big one um even you know in places where people think you know oh south texas is very conservative um, there's a lot of people um, that you know are very upset at the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned, and you know Texas has one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. Um, so choice is very much on the ballot, and there are very people that are motivated to not just get out and vote, but also activate people around them to make sure that they have a plan to vote. And I think the third um, issue that I've been hearing a lot, especially coming from teachers and parents is gun reform. Mm. Um, Uvalde, the Uvalde shooting um, actually happened on election day for our, for our race, um, May 24th. And the fact that, you know, all those children and staff were killed um, not so far away from, you know, my hometown of Laredo uh, very much is, is still haunting and, you know, hurting the community because we all know that that easily could have happened, you know, here. Absolutely. And um, a lot of parents, you know, are very worried about the safety of their children at school. I know a lot of teachers, especially with, um, you know, the school districts here being some of the largest employers in, in this in the um, in the county. Um, I think any day that people show up to work to show up to work at, at a school that's kind of in the back of their mind. And um, I definitely have seen, you know, the the increase in conversations about. The, the need for gun reform since the Ovila shooting happened in May. Wow. Well, thank you for, you know, just really kind of capturing those three big issues that many voters 
regardless of, of how they identify, would be thinking about, you know, choice, um, gun safety and pocketbook is- issues that affect all of us and all of our financial situations. One of the other things that has been in the news a lot with the state of Texas is governor's at governor Abbott's um, position rather, or non-position on um, migrants that are coming across our border. And, you know, we've seen not only governor Abbott, but also governor DeSantis down in Florida um, busing folks and sending them to other States or to quote unquote, big democratic states cities to have mayors feel whatever the pain that they've expressed in their in their states that we feel it in these other urban cores of the country. Just curious, how do you feel about Governor Abbott's position as it relates to people who are coming into the country, either through Texas or other other border states? And do you feel that, you know, him putting folks on buses shipping them to other states or other cities is an adequate response to people who might be coming here fleeing conflict or coming here in need. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the racist, xenophobic policy that's coming from people like, you know, Greg Abbott, I mean, anyone who really is trying to paint kind of what's on the border as like the wild West, including, you know, my former opponent, Henry Poyat, who usually sides with Republicans on this issue. Um, I mean, that kind of rhetoric and policy is very much putting people on the border in danger, including people like myself. I'm not sure if you saw, um, I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, there were two um, people that were shot. There were migrants. Um, They were shot. One of them was killed um, in in an area near El Paso. So it was near the border. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people you know, realize how much people like that look like me are in danger. I mean, we saw the El Paso shooting that also happened. And that was um, in in um, the the murder uh, murderers manifesto. Like he was talking about how he was very much inspired by, you know, these races um, rhetoric and that he did it basically to what he meant to cleanse right in the name of, of white supremacy. And, you know, to people like me and my family, I remember, you know, watching TV with them and, and seeing the news. Um, we we're just thinking about, you know, someone like my dad, right, who's a truck driver, who at any, you know, point in time, his truck can break down and he has to be on the side of the road trying to get help, trying to fix his, his, his trailer. And, you know, he looks like a migrant because he formerly was, right, like we all do. And that racist rhetoric is basically putting people like him and me in danger um, to where people are just going to, I guess, shoot us because of what we look like, right? And it's very frustrating to people here because how can these folks, conservatives, tell us that they want to, you know, secure the border and that their safety, our safety is very important to them when they're directly putting us in danger in this way. Um, So for, me, I mean, someone who has been working in immigration policy mm-hmm. and, and in the, the laws for such a long time, um, you know, 10 years, I guess, at this point, since I decided to go into immigration advocacy, um, Congress already, you know, established um, the pathway for these people to, you know, seek asylum in this country to try to get their cases adjudicated in court. But unfortunately, we still have these relics from the Trump administration, such as Title 42 
um, you know, the migrant protection protocols that were still um, in place up until recently that essentially closed the border for these people. And of course, you know, they made it all the way here. They get turned around by border patrol. They're not allowed to seek safety into this country at um, at designated ports of entry, which is how it used to be before and was a lot less chaotic than it is now. Um, but unfortunately, with the closures of the border, you know, people are forced to make dangerous decisions um, and try to desperately seek safety in this country. Um, and again, then we have people like, you know, Greg Abbott, who are basically, you know, committing human rights violations and the process also hurting our economy because, you know, um, I remember when he tried to implement stricter, um, what, what he said was going to be stricter uh, protocols on the ports of entry, which is where our trade and our commerce comes through. Right. And we lost millions of dollars in the process. And that, again, hurts people like me and my family because, um, you know, folks like my dad, you know, commerce is really important. Trade is really important to make sure that he's able to provide for his family. Um, so it's issues like that, that, you know, unfortunately are throwing border communities under the bus instead of actually addressing, you know, issues that we need to address, such as healthcare, education, mm -hmm. infrastructure, you know, other issues, whatever it is, like you name it. Unfortunately, those are going unaddressed in the name of, you know, the xenophobic anti-immigrant rhetoric. Right. And as an immigration lawyer, what are some things that you would, if you were advising Governor Abbott, which you know, that would be amazing if that were an actual <laughs> scenario. But if you if you had the opportunity to advise a governor who is leading a border state like Texas, as a, a person who works in this day in and day out, what are some policies? What are some very tangible things that the government can do, excuse me, and that border patrol agents can do on these borders where we know migrants are coming in. And again, it's not just this, this, this dangerous rhetoric that people are coming in to sell drugs. People are coming in to be harmful. People are coming in to do harm to our economy, but people are really trying to seek a better life and are coming for a number of reasons. But what are some specific policy things that you'd suggest or that we could implement as a country that would offer more safe passage than what we see now, which is this political fight about, you know, folks coming in and, and you know, when migrants come in, that they're not adding to the citizenship of the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem here is that, you know, there's technically... Greg Abbott, you know, as a, the head of a state, mm -hmm. um, it's very different law than it is when you compare it to immigration law, which is federal, right? right. Um, so that's part of the tension there that um, Governor Abbott is overstepping, trying to, you know, get Texas to essentially enforce federal law, which is inappropriate. I mean, that's part of the reason why we have kind of like our levels of government um and i think that's the big issue because texas unfortunately right now is wasting a lot of money sending you know folks to the border that um can't really do much just because of the jurisdiction that you know they're allowed for example the national guard um you know because of jurisdictional issues can't do much in terms of um 
when we were talking about immigration work. And unfortunately, he's actually putting them in a very desperate situation Mm -hmm. where um, there's a lot of folks that are part of the National Guard that have committed suicide um, as a result of this unnecessary mission that Governor Abbott has placed them in. Mm -hmm. Like instead of actually using them right to better uh, our state, give them a mission that they can be proud of um, and one that they would not put their mental health at risk, Governor Abbott is doing a complete disservice to the National Guard. Um, So that's just one example, right? Making sure that, you know, they're not wasting their time um, and we can actually, you know, put them in other things that would be beneficial toward our state because they deserve that. In terms of what we can do right now with the people that are already coming, I mean, like I said, Congress already addressed that back in 1980 when it, you know, passed uh, a law as to what we should be doing with asylum seekers that are coming to this country. I think the reason why we're seeing such a hyperfixation on the border and this, you know, false narrative that uh, there's an unprecedented crisis is because Republicans know that if they keep pushing this issue, it's a distraction from all the other issues where they have failed this country. Mm. That's why in this midterm election, as Democrats are trying to bring up, you know, pocketbook issues, such as increasing the minimum wage or talking about, you know, choice, you always see Republicans, conservatives pivot to immigration because they know that they cannot, they they don't have answers for the other issues. So they're trying to distract um, by, you know, talking about, you know, a crisis on the border when there is none. Um, And even when you're talking about issues like how to address human trafficking along the border, which is something that Republicans always try to bring up, um, you can do that by, again, making sure that people are able to already access the safeguards that we have in terms of trying to seek asylum in this country by going to a designated port of entry, which is what we were doing before the Trump administration. And the reason why we weren't hearing about, you know, issues along the border before that, um, at least not in at the level that we hear about it now on the news was because our system was working. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think returning to that would be a very big step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, anything we can do to try to make sure that, you know, we have the resources to um, be able to reach these people along the border and try to process, you know, their cases as, as soon as possible, um, I think would be really very, very important. Got it. And so, Jessica, just to kind of close us out with, you know, thinking about the midterms and if there are any listeners who are saying, you know, what advice would you give to voters as they're heading to the polls, um, not only voting, you know, at the federal level for, you know, congressmen and senators, but also voters who are heading thinking about their down ballot elections, also thinking about any gubernatorial elections that may be arising um, in their that are, that are happening in their states. Um, what would you leave with folks? And then finally, what what's next for you? What's next for your political future? Should you decide to run again or will you stay in in immigration advocacy? Would really love to just hear what's next um, post this election. Sure. Um, Well, to that latter question, I haven't thought of it much because I kind of feel like I need to finish off this election cycle first and whatever I can do to support, you know, candidates that I think um, 
are going to do you know, good by the people that are going to elect them. Um, it's really important to me, especially again, with all the political, the political infrastructure that we've been able to build in South Texas in such a short time, mm-hmm. um, doing what we can to make sure that we can put good people in office is really important to me. So I've been focusing on that first and then, you know, take it from there. But in terms of what advice I have for people, I think the big one that I have, especially right now, is making sure that your registration is updated. And if you're not registered to vote, make sure you get registered to vote. In Texas, um, you have to be registered to vote at least uh, a month in advance of the election you're trying to participate in. And that deadline is coming up very, very soon. Um, So making sure that people are registered to vote is key if you want to participate in these midterm elections. And I think the next one um, is making sure that people know that by the mere virtue of you living where you live, um, you have a space in the political uh, process. And I I think that was a big kind of hurdle that we had to overcome here um, in South Texas, where people felt like politics wasn't a space for them, um, that maybe they, you know, didn't have the proper background or the proper education or even the proper status, since there's some people that are ineligible to vote um, because they might not be U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's still other ways that you can get involved. Um, And you should also have a say in terms of like, hey, I support this candidate. I know other people that are eligible to vote. Um, I'm going to make sure that those people have a plan to vote because I can't vote myself. So, you know, things like that, uh, making sure that people know that this is a space for them is very important. And, you know, just trying to find their websites, doing the research, hearing the candidate talk, attending events if possible, talking to people that you trust, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that share similar values to you um, and hearing from them, you know, who they're supporting as you're doing your research. Um, I think that all of those things lead to a very informed decision when it comes to who, who to vote for on the ballot. Awesome. Okay. well, Jessica Cisneros. Thank you so much for joining the Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. And we hope to have you back again. Thank you so much, Crystal. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. The best way you can support us is to give your five star review on Apple iTunes and be sure to check out our diverse lineup of over 12 different podcasts and radio programs at Newsweek.com forward slash podcast. I'm Crystal Knight. Thank you for listening. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to The Crystal Knight Show.